Okay, so we'll go through study 1A and, and B, and you may think that it cannot be done, and it probably can't, <laughs> just to be quite honest, but we, that's not going to stop us from trying, is it? We heard about God can do preposterous things today, <laughs> and it would be preposterous if we could get through this, but we're going to give it a try. So you can just open up to uh, the first page, first question of 1A. And the way we're going to do this uh, is we're gonna, we'll stop and talk about certain things. We'll make notes. Um, but this is meant for this is meant to be a, a Bible study that you can use uh, beyond just today. Um, so you'll if you don't have a, I have one pen. Does anyone need a pen? One pen. Okay. What's that? Pass it around. Yeah. Uh, if anyone needs a pen, you can borrow mine. Uh, but hopefully this will be beneficial to you um, beyond just the study. Hopefully you can take these notes on the answer to these questions. And you can use, you can use uh, the, the way the questions are asked in this study in your own Bible study. You can look at another book of the Bible and you can, you can say, what kind of questions are being asked here? How, how, how do I ask questions of the text? And you can do this for yourself because as you can see, as we go through this, there's nothing spectacular about the questions that we ask to study the Bible. It's not something that, you know, you have to train for 10 years to figure out how to do. We can all do it. So, first question, whom did God use to write the book of Romans? Paul. Paul wrote the book of Romans, and he says that uh, in, in the opening verses. The second question, many ancient letters were dictated to a secretary or amanuensis, that's how that's pronounced, amanuensis, who physically wrote the letter. These letters were often hand-carried by another person traveling to the vicinity of the recipients and delivered personally. Frequently, a brief word of commendation about the letter carrier was included to introduce him or her for the purpose of finding lodging or employment. So the letter A, based on 1622, what was the name of the amanuensis who originally penned the book of Romans? Tertius, okay, Tertius. So, uh, again, an amanuensis, is a, you can uh, kind of imagine Paul pacing back and forth in a room, and he's dictating this entire letter to, uh, to Tertius. That's a big job. Can you imagine writing out this whole book by hand? And it's not like, uh, it's not like Tertius had a nice ballpoint pen that he could work with or a word processor that he could use on the computer. And he, used, uh, he used somebody by the name of Tertius. And... It does raise, raise questions for us, right, about uh, the inspiration of the Bible, because as Christians we believe that uh, God's word is inspired. And what do we mean? What do we mean when we say that God's word is inspired? Any any ideas? Holy Spirit. Okay, the Holy Spirit is involved. What else? Okay, God breathes. Yes, actually, that's the that's the actual word that's used uh, in Second Timothy three sixteen and seventeen. Um, says that God breathed out his word, and if you have a King James version of the Bible, I believe it says inspired. That's how they translated the Greek term there. Um, but when, we, when you and I talk about inspiration, being inspired, uh, we mean differently than what, we mean that differently than what we mean when we talk about God's word. Um, when, when we're talking about inspiration as it's related to God's word, we are talking about the fact that the, the finished product 
of God's word is inspired. That is, it is from God. It is completely authoritative. Because it's from God, it, it, it carries authority. Because it's from God, it is without error. Because God is incapable of making an error. And so it shouldn't, uh, shouldn't upset our apple cart to see Paul dictating uh, his letter to Tertius because God oversaw that process such that the finished product it could rightly be called something that God himself breathed out. And this is a fairly common practice in these times to use someone who was basically a professional secretary, uh, somebody that could write well and quickly and clearly, and Paul uses Tertius to help him do that. Whom did God use to deliver this letter to the Christians in Rome? Phoebe. Okay. And it's not to- we're not totally clear that it's Phoebe that did that, uh, but if you look at those, it says, it says uh, in 16, or chapter 16, verses 1 and 2, I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Sancria. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need for you, for she has been a great help to many people, including me. And so when these letters, when Paul would write letters, um, he didn't have a, a big blue post office box that he could drop um, the letter in. He had to have somebody hand carry it and hand walk it to wherever it needed to go. And Phoebe was the person who did that. How did, how did the Apostle Paul assess the content of his letter in 1515? What does he say about what he's written? Okay, he's done it boldly. And, you know, we, we find in the, in the opening chapter, in chapter 1 and verse 16, we find Paul seemingly being a little bit more tentative than normal. And we think one of the reasons that he was a little bit more tentative than usual is that he doesn't have a direct personal connection to the people who are at the church in Rome. He says in the letter that he's never been to Rome. He didn't plant the church in Rome. Now, he obviously, from chapter 16, he greets several people that are in Rome, so he knows people there, but he hasn't officially been there. He didn't didn't plant that church. And Paul's whole ministry revolved around going to not building an, upon another's foundation. That was, that was Paul's uh, ministry philosophy. He was going to go around and plant churches and start gospel ministry, ministry in, in all kinds of cities and towns, but his goal in selecting those was going where Christ has not yet been named because he doesn't want to build an, upon another's foundation. And so he says, we see him saying, you know, almost softening um, by saying, I know I've written to you boldly, almost softening what he's written, because uh, he recognizes that they don't have a personal connection with them, but he is trying to make clear that he, as the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul was given a, a special ministry as the apostle specifically sent to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Paul doing that... Um, uh, wants, has, has authority and he's speaking to them authoritatively but he wants to make sure he comes across the right way in doing so because he's never met them so he sometimes asserts his apostolic authority a bit tentatively because of that oftentimes we credit letter B oftentimes we credit personal boldness to personality natural self-confidence or even pride and, and we look at somebody like Paul, if you, if you read Paul the way I do, 
he goes on these three missionary journeys. He's shipwrecked. He's 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 beaten. He's let out of a city in a basket. You know, this guy's crazy. And we think that there's something different that separates us from him. But is there really anything different that separates us from him? <laughs> That's right. Well put. <laughs> um, there's there's nothing that separates us from from these people that we read about in scripture. In fact, that's something that we talked about this morning again. You know, it just it, it comes up again and again. But I was thinking about that as Pastor Ken was preaching because he was saying, you know, we look at these people and their example of faith and their example of boldness, and then we almost tagline our reading with, "Don't try this at home. Don't do what they did. You could never do what they did." Um, but that's not the case. And look at what Paul says is the source of his boldness. What does Paul say is the source of his boldness? What's, okay, God's grace. It was, it was favor that Paul didn't deserve that enabled him to have the ministry that he had and to do the things that he did. Sorry, this thing keeps shaking. Um, letter C. In what ways do you think your Christian life would be enhanced if you could consistently appropriate this same strength. In other words, if you could rely on on God's grace working through you, how would that change the way you live? <coughs> you have a lot less, less inhibitions. Okay, a lot less inhibitions. All right, what else? Okay, a better witness. We certainly can be inhibited when it comes to our witness. Anything else? We wouldn't be making excuses why we couldn't. Okay, we wouldn't be making excuses of why we can't. Coming up with all the reasons why we shouldn't. All right, good. Anyone else? We'd be bold. Okay, we'd be more bold. You know, I think about my myself and how it would make a difference for me, and and sometimes I I just when it comes to evangelism, personal witness for me. I, I spend too much time trying to think how to engineer the situation and make it work right. And if they say this, I'm going to say this. And I, I think I've got to have the whole conversation figured out before I get into it. And it never goes that way anyway because you're dealing with a person. And in fact, what we have sometimes made a mistake of doing in our evangelistic conversations is we aren't actually listening to the other person. We're waiting for them to stop talking so we can tell them our second point. Uh, but but Paul's example is good here in in being bold, in letting go of our inhibitions, of of being what God wants us to be, because it's God's grace working through us. If we can get a hold, if we can all get to get a hold of the fact that without God we're zeros anyway. Should we be like a constant witness, not just to think it through? Sure, we should be a constant witness, and I think we should constantly be thinking about how to present the gospel better, because some people can be better at it than others. So I think we should be growing in it. But yeah, I mean, our, our whole lives are supposed to be evangelistic. That's, that's absolutely right. So Paul wrote to the Roman Christians in verse 4, informing them, I'm sorry, in question 4, informing them of his desire to visit Rome. Letter A, who or what do you think hindered him from visiting the church prior to this time? What's that? Okay, God did. God did. Why else? What's what's the reason that God hindered him 
so the church could grow. I mean, so there would be more there, isn't it? What? Say it again. So that there would be more, so the church could grow. Okay, so the church could grow. Mm-hmm. True. True. Anyone else see anything in verse uh, 19? Great. Good. Okay. So yeah, God God prevents him. He says he's tried several times, and God's prevented him from visiting them at Rome. And he, in some ways, says that's okay, because he knows that the gospel's already been preached there, and he and the church is growing there. Letter B. What were the circumstances that prevented the Apostle Paul from immediately visiting the church in Rome at this time? So, I mean, their way to travel was slow. Okay. You know, I, I mean, in today's day and age, somebody could just fly over for a visit or, you know, and come back, but he was still teaching people to become teachers. Right. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, there's travel limitations. Obviously, you've got to, if you're going to go somewhere back then, you've got to really think it through. You know, I, I don't remember something long enough. You know, I don't, ha- I don't have to remember anything. If I need to go pick anything up, I run down to the gas station. I, I don't have to make a list because I'll just run back out. Uh, and <coughs> traveling, traveling is difficult there, so he has to, he has to think strategically. Um, where, was he, where was he going to go? I mean, he's very clear with them that he's going to go somewhere else first. Where does he say he's going to go? Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Okay, and why is he going to go to Jerusalem? Okay. All right. The text says that he's going to go to Jerusalem first because there are poor who need aid there. And there are several churches who have done, you know, we, sometimes we think of our churches are different than their churches were, um, but they, they're not that different. You know, our churches gather together offerings to give to people in need. We support churches elsewhere in the world. And they did the same thing. And he's got this financial gift that he wants to take to Jerusalem to bring aid. And Jerusalem, uh, there were times, uh, especially in the first century, where, where persecution was very strong in Jerusalem. Um, because you've got, obviously, the Roman issue going on, but you've also got the fact that Christians aren't being very well received by the Jewish community. In fact, he himself... It has been a, a strident persecutor of the Christian community, finding them wherever he could, throwing them in jail. So that's the, that's the situation that the, that the believers in Jerusalem find themselves in. And it, and it says in, in the opening chapters of Acts that they're selling everything they have and they're giving to one another to try to help each other make ends meet. And other churches also are banding together to help them do that. So... Question 5, letter A, what does the Apostle Paul call the financial gift given by the churches of Macedonia and Achaia to the saints in Jerusalem? He calls it a few different things. What does he, what does he call the gift? What's that? Fruit, okay. Fruit, or he calls it material blessing in another place. So turning the page then to letter B, In what ways do you think the gifts we dedicate to the Lord can be compared to fruit? Why why does he call it fruit? 
And how does that relate to us? What are your thoughts? What's that? Okay, fruit of labor, all right. Oh, it's because it's Jewish, Jewish people, because Jerusalem, Jerusalem is how they catch the Okay, okay, good. So, so the, he's saying that uh, Jerusalem was sending people out to give the gospel, and in some ways they were uh, uh, a product of that. Go ahead. Um, you can see the, uh, the gifts being, in our day, uh, for example, missions, where we're giving to missionaries in other areas, to be the seed of further furthering the gospel and uh, growing, you know, reaching others and then growing, you know, other Christians. And that could be, you know, the fruit. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. There's, there's a there. Fruit is is a return on your labor. It's a return on your investment. It's a return on on cultivation. And so the Jerusalem church is serving as as sending people out to see that happen, and they're getting a return. And that fruit is a demonstration, I think we, should, we would say, a, de- a demonstration of the spiritual realities that were taking place in the lives of the people that they've reached. Because not only are these people accepting the gospel message, but it's changing the way they live their lives. All of a sudden, all of a sudden they're taking money that used to be theirs and they're giving it to people with whom they have nothing much in common with nationally, <laughs> ethnically, they've never met. I mean, at least we're able to have missionary prayer cards to put on our refrigerators. Or you can hop on your missionary's blog and write, and you can know what he had for lunch today. But back then, the likelihood of you knowing anything that was going on was zilch. There was no possibility of knowing much of anything. Um, and yet, this they get some fruit... <laughs> From from the, the the gospel taking root in the people in the people that they had never met. Let us see what important financial stewardship principle taught in other portions of the Word of God does the Apostle Paul reiterate in Romans fifteen twenty seven? And to answer that question, would somebody be willing to read First Corinthians nine fourteen? And would somebody be willing to read Galatians six six? Anyone can do it. All right, thank you. Yeah, First Corinthians nine fourteen. Okay. Those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel. Lana, do you want to read the other one? Anyone who receives instruction in the word must share all the things with his instructor. Okay, thank you. And that, then it says in our, in our passage that we're discussing, 1527, they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. That's kind of a strong way of putting it, isn't it? They owe it. So answer the question, what, what important financial stewardship principle is taught here? that's in harmony with, with the rest of God's word. Okay. Financial support for pastors and leadership. Okay. And broaden it, broaden it even further beyond the pastor and leadership. Okay, the church. You know, I think we could say it this way. Those who have benefited from the gospel ministry have a responsibility to support it. 
Those who have benefited from the gospel ministry have a responsibility to support it. And that's why we give. It's an act of worship that is, is, is fruit, a demonst- an outward demonstration of an inward spiritual reality where we have benefited from the gospel, it has changed us, and we now want to support the spread of the gospel. And so we support the spread of the gospel by, by paying for people to teach us and to oversee the church. We support the spread of the gospel um, by giving to, to missionaries that are on the other side of the globe. And we support the gospel by meeting needs of people. And um, that is, and uh, that's why I think Paul rightly says uh, they owe it. <laughs> we owe it. We owe it as, as an outward response to the inward change in our hearts. Number six, the word Gentiles is used variously in Scripture. Sometimes it refers to a person who is not a Christian and one who is involved in a pagan lifestyle, or it can simply refer to a person of non-Jewish descent. Which of these two uses of the word Gentile do you think the Apostle Paul meant in 1527? You think it's you think it's Jewish descent? Non-Jewish descent? Right. I assume that's I assume that's what you were I assume that's what you were trying to say. And that's correct. Okay, and we we see that lots of times. Jews contrasted with with Greeks. Uh, <clears throat> Or, or Gentiles, and Gentiles, is, the scripture sometimes says, don't live like the Gentiles, which refers to a, a worldly pattern of living. But it often just means anybody who's not a Jew. Number seven, besides explaining the great cardinal doctrines of the Christian faith, there are at least three other reasons the Apostle Paul wrote to the believers at Rome. What are they? So call them out and name them for us. Okay, he wants prayer support. So 28 through 30, uh, he's he's wanting to uh, them to to establish prayer support for him. What else? Okay, he wants their physical assistance. Where's he going? Okay, he's going to Spain, and he and and Paul is looking at them strategically, and saying, I want to minister to Spain, and I want to use your church, your assembly, as, as a beachhead, basically. And I, I'm hoping, though I've never met you, that when I come and visit, I will find people who are supporting me in prayer and will support me financially for my ministry in Spain. What else did he want to do? There were a bunch of people there that were very brainiac over the time. I would think that he would want the people to reach out to other people. You know? Okay, okay. And did you? Where did you see that? I know. Okay. <laughs> what study Bible do you have there? I'm not arguing with her. <laughs> you don't have to look at the front cover. So it's, it's a life Bible, life, life, life application study Bible. Okay. So there. So looking at Rome is kind of uh, uh, an urban center of the world at that time, and wanted to make use. Yeah, that's a that's a good assumption. So we've already said, verse 8, that Paul's ultimate destination is in visiting Rome is Spain because he wants to carry on ministry there. Now then, look at uh, number 9. 
Paul's personal greeting to several believers at Rome could be called the layman's hall of faith. When we can cross-reference Hebrews 11, which we call the hall of faith, which we happen to be going through right now, we call the layman's hall of faith. Uh, what words and phrases are used to describe these precious saints? Look at, look at, there's a ton of words here that he uses. What are they? <coughs> Beloved, okay. Okay. Okay, good, good. Keep going. What's that? Dear friends, okay. Okay, relative, okay. Linda, did you say something I didn't hear? Okay, fellow prisoners. All right, good. You, you, you're pointing out all of these things. Isn't it interesting that somebody who has such a position, <clears throat> the position that Paul has, I mean, he is the apostle to the Gentiles. Um, he's responsible for writing most of the doctrinal sections of the New Testament. And the way he refers to, to these people whom he has never met, he refers to them as his relatives. He refers to them as his, his fellow workers. He doesn't put himself on a plane that's any higher than they are. He looks at, he looks at, at their work in the gospel and his work as a, in the gospel, not as them serving him, but them together serving their common master, Christ. Which of uh, which, uh, two of these words or phrases are used most often? Dear friends, okay, that's one of them. Shows up a lot of times. Okay, beloved shows up a lot of times. And there's one thing you know I didn't I didn't catch it the first time uh, I read through, but he talks about uh, them being in Christ or in the Lord over and over and over again, which highlights the fact that their unity is based on Christ. That's the common point of connection between them. And as we think about ourselves and our outreach evangelism and endeavors. We, we have a common bond. Think about uh, Rob Howell, one of the missionaries that we support in Tanzania. I had the privilege of, uh, a few years ago of actually visiting Rob in Africa and seeing the churches that, that have been planted there. And, and it's, it's an amazing thing to think that we're sitting here in this room and they're sitting there. I know where they meet. <laughs> They meet, uh, they, so some, some of the churches have like a concrete wall, concrete block buildings. Other churches, they're just sitting outside, um, maybe worshiping a little bit differently than we do. But we have a common bond with them because of Christ. Christ is the common bond we have. And we, uh, our work in gospel ministry is no more important than the work they're doing. These are people who have, have come to know the Lord in just the past few years, five, six, seven, eight, nine years. And so we think, well, you know, what could they do? You know, they, we've, we've, we've been Protestants for, for hundreds of years. <laughs> you know, we've got seminaries, we've got this, and we've got that. I'll tell you what, they're doing the same thing we're doing. They're planting churches. They're, they're going to the next town. They're training pastors. It's all happening over there. And it's because of Christ. Christ can do the same things that he's done here in another country in just a couple of years. And it completely changes the way a culture is going. It completely changes the lives of families. 
and we work together with them for a common goal. Uh, Paul had never been to Rome, yet was able to greet several believers personally. How do you think this could be possible? Like you said, one in Christ. Same goals and values. Okay, he already has an affinity toward them because of that. Uh, He does seem to know some of them, a few of them. He has some names. Yeah. Okay, yep, that's possible. It's possible that they came to him. Um, Paul is Paul is, is obviously visiting many churches and, and people are being sent to help that out. And I'm sure also that some of the people in Rome, um, he knew from Jerusalem that had actually moved out, out to Rome to be a part of the church there. What warning and advice did the apostle give the Christians at Rome in verses 17 and 18 of chapter 16? Okay. Watch out for watch out for and keep away from people who cause divisions. And what what does he say that people who cause divisions are like? People put obstacles in the way. Okay, they put obstacles in the way and what else do they do? Deceive. They deceive. Contrary teaching. Okay, contrary teaching. What else? Okay, they cause divisions. Deceive. They Okay, and who do they serve? Okay, they're not serving. Who are they serving? Their own selves. Right, their own selves. Is this is this uh, is this a problem in our day? <laughs> it is, isn't it? There are people who come in and teach false doctrine. It is possible for our church to be influenced by false doctrine. What we are what we are doing right now as as a as a smaller group piece of the pie of our church is important. Because when you're studying you're studying the word, you are obeying and being watchful as Paul has said, because it's up to us, all of us, to guard against false doctrine. It's not just a job for one or two people in the church to kind of be the gatekeepers. And we all tell you what's good, and then you do it. We're all supposed to be involved in this fight against false doctrine. Is divisiveness a problem? Could divisiveness kill our church? It could, couldn't it? Divisiveness could absolutely kill Community Baptist Church. And I think one of the best ways to guard against divisiveness is not, necess- is not simply an outward focus looking for, okay, who's divisive? It's Tony. I know it's Tony. <laughs> he can't say anything because his voice is half gone. <laughs> divisiveness starts right here. Protecting our assembly from divisiveness starts with you. Because you, can, you and I can easily get tweaked about something, anything. Sometimes it can be, I didn't like that sermon. Sometimes it could be simple as, I think we should use Dixie cups for cafe community rather than styrofoam cups for cafe community. I mean, 
That kind of stuff that kind of stuff happens to churches all the time. You probably know of churches who have been divided. And so, you know, we're we're still looking at the front and back end of this letter because we're trying to get an understanding of what was going on in in their church. Why did Paul write to them? What are the circumstances that made all of this happen? And I think it's instructive for us to know that that Paul tells that church and also us through the word that there are people out there who are out for number one. And so they will divide and teach and say whatever they have to do for their own interests to gain a following for themselves. You and I need to heed those these words of warning and be on 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 call <laughs> so that we can mark and avoid those kinds of people. Last thing, and I know we've got to go, and yes, we did fail at getting through both. I failed. Sorry, you did not fail. How did God use the simple obedience of the believers at Rome? Okay, as an example and an encouragement to others. Go ahead. Right. Right, exactly. And and their obedience can be the very the very fact that they were just being obedient to God's word was an encouragement to others. Not that they were doubling the size of their congregation every year or starting a new building project every year or whatever it is that impresses us right now. They were encouragement because of their faithfulness. That's a target we can all hit, isn't it? All right. Let's, uh, we'll pick up where we left off next week. Let's close in a word of prayer. I thank you, Lord, uh, for... These, uh, these chapters that we've looked at in Romans. And I thank you for the unity that we have with the body of Christ, not just here, but in all over the world, that we can be an encouragement to others, others can be an encouragement to us, we can support one another in the work of the gospel. And I just pray that you would help us to preserve that unity, that you would keep our assembly free from division and doctrine that would divide. Please uh, go with each one of us this week. Help us to serve you in the choices and priorities that we make. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.